Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to a very special edition of Dear Hank and John. I prefer to call it Dear John and Hank. Why Why is this a special edition? I just decided it was. It's all a right. podcast. Yes. Where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John. Yeah. Sometimes when Catherine and I go into buildings, I'll take the stairs and she'll take the elevator. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Why is that, Hank? I don't really know either. I guess we were just raised differently. Oh god. I mean, I never I never see it coming, but I also do not enjoy it when it arrives. So I guess that's a successful dad joke. I Hank, I have such good news for you, which is that just today, and I'll remind you, the day is not even over yet. Just today, 220,519 Babies Ooh. have been born. <gasps> oh, imagine and all every of those single babies. One of them is cute. That's right. It's like the city of Columbus, Ohio, but populated entirely <laughs> by babies. <laughs> Just tiny little babies who were literally. You, you you look at those babies and you say, "What? What's wrong with you? Were you born yesterday?" And they're like, "No, no, no. You don't understand, sir. I was born today." <laughs> And that's just the human babies. We're not even counting the puppies. That's right, Hank. There are so many babies in the world. And if that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. I I kept thinking this morning, we have to make the world better for all of these babies. Uh, Yeah, John, I think that's one of the big reasons why we uh, are, you know, as a species, build things instead of destroying things, because we want to make life better for the babies. John, do you want to make life better for some of our listeners? Yeah, Hank, do you think there's any, like, newborn babies listening to the pod right now? If so, welcome to the world, baby. What's up, you cool babies? That's a different podcast. Yeah, that's a much better podcast, technically. (laughs) It reminds me of a great quote from Kurt Vonnegut, Hank. Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. On the outside, babies, you've got a hundred years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. Aww. Sorry for cursing. 
All right, John, this first question comes from Lauren, who asks an important question regarding the structure of Dear Hank and John. So let's get that one out of the way. Dear Hank and John, do you script episodes of the pod or completely wing it? Sense and sensibility, Lauren. <laughs> Does it sound scripted? It's completely scripted. We, we wrote out all of the baby stuff. Yeah, that was in great 100%. detail. Yeah, oh. John didn't. John didn't spend uh, twenty minutes just now trying to get that Kurt Vonnegut quote to load so he could get it right. No, absolutely not. That was written down beforehand. How is Goodreads a website owned by Amazon but still so <laughs> slow? <laughs> it works fine for me. I think it's your terrible internet at your uh, office. We do for an internet video company. We have some bad internet. Yeah, we don't script anything. We do usually make some notes about a few of the questions, especially if the questions are hard and we're worried about how we're going to answer them. But no, we rely upon a little something called serendipity. Yeah, magic, just bl- brotherly magic. That's right. It's all it's all magic here. Low quality magic. Yeah, not saying magic doesn't have to be great. Nope. There's lots of bad magic in the world. I I Uh, would say almost all magic is bad (laughs) magic. Uh, Well, then that would line you right up with all the people in the 17th century, John. I am totally with them. Whenever I see a magician and the magician really tricks me, like I saw David Blaine perform once. Mm -hmm. And at first I was like, that's very impressive, that trickery. And then I was like, we need to burn this witch. (laughs) Too soon. Is it too soon to from the 17th century? To yeah, maybe. Joke? Maybe. I don't know. That is definitely... It, it, the patriarchy still exists, John. It hasn't completely well, gone away. There's no question about that, but I wouldn't argue that David Blaine is going to take it down. <laughs> I don't know. He, he seems to be capable of a lot. Um, the other thing about David Blaine's performance is that while he was... I'm just remembering this. I'm sorry. Uh, While he was like immersed in a large tank of water for nine minutes, ostensibly setting the like world record for a number of minutes, a person has held their breath. Mm -hmm. There was like a cocktail party going on Mm -hmm. at this event that I was at. And so everybody was just sort of chatting amiably while David Blaine's hype man was trying to get people to pay attention to the fact that David Blaine was stuck inside of a water filled container. Oh, because, like, he was in there for 17 minutes. This is a fact that I know. Don't ask me why. Uh, whether or not it's a trick, that's... I'm just going to disregard that. But, like, the thing is, 17 minutes is just a long time for nothing to happen. Even if that nothing is, like, a man not dying in a situation where he should. It's just, like, eventually I'm like, I need some cheese. Yeah. Like, this is kind of boring. Yeah, exactly. It got a little... You need to levitate or something. Like, do some magic. Right. Sometimes with David Blaine's magic, I feel a little bit like I'm watching an Andy Warhol movie. <laughs> like, I get that this is uh, proper art and everything, but I like it when uh, events occur. But anyway, to the question, we do read all the questions beforehand. I try to have, like, something in my brain that's like, oh, I have something that I can say about that question. Uh, and then we, we mark it two different colors uh, for for when a Hank likes it and John likes it. And then we tend to answer the ones that both Hank and John liked. That's right. That's exactly it. John, did you know that this week we received our 50,000th question in the wow. inbox? Wow. 
And we've answered like 600 of them. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel bad about it. Thanks, everybody, for sending those in. We need great questions to make good podcasts. So thank you to, for sending them in. If you want a little bit of uh, question advice, I'm here to give it uh, shorter questions. It does tend to be better when the questions are shorter. And sometimes we actually end up editing them a little bit. Sorry to people who we've done that to. All right. This next question comes from Elowen, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm getting my wisdom teeth out next week, and the dental office called to remind me of my appointment. Obviously, I didn't pick up the phone and let it go to voicemail because I'm an Taco Gen Z introvert. They left a message reminding me of my appointment and asked me to call back to confirm it. Do I really have to call back? This has been booked for weeks, so it's not like they're going to cancel just because I don't call back to confirm. Soon to be lacking wisdom, Elowen. I mean, maybe it's good practice. Elowen, you've got to learn how to make phone yeah. calls. It's so important that we talk to each other. That we that hu- I know that like the weird thing is it gets harder the more you don't do it. But I think it's really bad for us not to talk to each other. Yeah, uh, it's so in this situation, there's there's two things I'd say. The first one is just like maybe this is like good practice phone call because you know exactly how the phone call's gonna go. There's no unexpected left turn that it could take so um so it's a it's a safe one the second thing is like i don't really know how dental offices work but i assume that since they're asking it's going to make this person's life easier if you make the phone call and so when i'm in that that situation i try to make the person's life easier if it's not you know, if it's something that I can do for them. Yeah, yeah, and I totally agree with that, Hank, but I also think that it might in some small way, Elowen, help reduce the overall amount of loneliness in the world, which <laughs> reminds me of another Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> oh, quote. God. Are you did you load it already? It's a very special Kurt Vonnegut episode. Yeah, that's why that's why it's such a special episode, John. I knew that there would be something. Yes. It's the Kurt Vonnegut special. Uh, Vonnegut once wrote, What should young people do with their lives today? Many things, obviously, but the most daring thing is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. Whoa! He wrote that in the 1970s, Jeez. but I think that is really, really true for 2018. Yeah I, yeah, I think that it comes down to a kind of a, like a signal of appreciation for the work that this other person is doing. And, and so hopefully, you know, if... Like if it is an insurmountable obstacle, it is an insurmountable obstacle. But um, but I think everyone involved would appreciate it if uh, if the if the phone call was made. John, also I don't know if you know this, but uh, I do, you know used to really not like getting poked with needles, mm-hmm. and then I had to go get poked with needles every week for six weeks, and then for the rest of my life every every three months. And uh, now it's not a big deal. <laughs> so. Oh, that's about phone calls. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's so true. The first time you make a phone call to the dentist, it's so stressful. Now I know the people in my dentist's office so much that when I call, they just pick up and say, hey, John, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I uh, I have gone from being a person who was scared to order food at Wendy's to being a person who like has a rapport with the person at Wendy's who like has mm, met them. I'm going to and- submit that your rapport with the person <laughs> at Wendy's is not as good as you believe it to be. We just have very friendly fast food workers in Missoula, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're now the old man who goes up to, to the person at Wendy's and they're like, may I take your order? And you're like, yeah, but before you take my order, let me tell you about something that happened to me earlier no, this afternoon. No, that's not. No, that's not me. 
All right, Hank, what's the next question? This question comes from Emily, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm applying for summer internships, and some job applications ask for my desired rate of pay or desired salary. Mm. As an engineering intern, I know I should be paid more than minimum wage, but as a millennial slash Gen Zer, I'm 20 years old. You're solidly Gen Z, my friend. I just want a job, and I'm happy to ask for what I could get. How much money should I ask for? Insert creative sign-off, Emily. Mm. Emily, this is so much easier now than it used to be. It's still really hard, of course, but it used to be like basically impossible. Mm -hmm. But now you can go to websites like Glassdoor and you can just kind of Google around and get a sense of what the starting pay is for companies like the company that you're applying to for jobs like the one that you're going to have. Yeah. And I also think this is a such a weird like, how much would you like to get paid? And it's like, the maximum amount. Like, how much do you have? <laughs> right. I would like to get paid 100% of what you have budgeted for this position. Yeah, I, would, I, can, I would like to be paid $500,000 an hour. Is that an option? Right. Well, let's negotiate down from there. That, that Maybe that's what you should do. I remember, I might have told this story before on the pod, but the very first time I got a full-time job, my boss the person who was going to be my boss wrote a number down on a piece of paper, literally folded the piece of paper and what? like slid it across the table to me. And then I unfolded the piece of paper and I was not able to contain my shock, glee, and like overwhelmed mm. joy when I saw 27,500 on that piece of paper. <laughs> and like all ability I had to negotiate my salary completely flew out the window. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> it was a different time, but also I just had few, I didn't have many needs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you've got to Google. You've got to Google. Uh, I, I, think it's such a, I think it's such a weird question to ask. I, I feel like you should, there should be a rate that you get paid. I don't know what the goal of that question is, but you can either put the number that you Google or you can just say, you could just tongue in cheek it and be like, whatever you got, friends. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to get a job. What you got, buddy? <laughs> it's like, so, yeah. Salary expectations? Uh, I got to look you in the eye and see what you got before I can tell you. <laughs> look, show me your balance sheets. I need to see the uh, the business, how much you got, how you doing, and I can uh, figure out how much uh, how much value I can add, and then just you know subtract twenty twenty percent from that, and you got my salary, friends. <laughs> That's a, uh, not a bad strategy, actually, to be like instead of telling you my salary expectations, let me tell you my revenue generation expectations. I expect. <laughs> To generate $140,000 of revenue for your company, and so I expect to be paid 20% less than that. It's <laughs> good. I love that. Uh, you're getting a good old margin on me, a solid margin, my friends. Reminds me of a great quote by Kurt Vonnegut <laughs> from his wonderful novel, Mother Night. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be very careful about what we pretend to be. You've got to pretend to be an expert in salary negotiation in this situation. You know, John, that Kurt Vonnegut quote reminded me of a Kurt Vonnegut quote. <laughs> Anything can make me stop and look and wonder and sometimes learn. <laughs> that, that reads like you've never read a Kurt Vonnegut novel and you just Googled <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut quote. I don't even, I've never read that one, so I'm not sure it's real. 
<laughs> I don't also, know. also attributed to Mark Twain and Michael Scott. <laughs> That's it. Might be a Wayne Gretzky quote, John. I don't know. <laughs> All right, Hank, this next question comes from Samantha who writes, Dear John and Hank, how do I open an email when I'm writing to two people of equal importance without insulting one or the other? I'm double majoring and I need to write an email to both of my advisors but don't want to write two separate emails. Do I put the advisor for the major I like better first or do I put the oldest one first as a show of respect? Obviously not, dear Hank and John. Do I put the one first that will likely have more to say? Obviously not, dear Hank and John. Do I go alphabetically? (laughs) Arguably. How can I avoid naming either of them without it sounding weird and stilted? Also, when you get an email that has the other brother's name first, are you insulted? (laughs) Not a witch, but named for one Samantha. Uh, John. Yeah. So... I think that this question is probably best answered with the Kurt Vonnegut quote. <laughs> I now I now make my living by being impolite. I am clumsy at it. Man, Samantha, you are clumsy at being impolite. Yeah, Samantha, there's only two kinds of people in this world. People who don't care whether their name is first in a list of two names and bad people. <laughs> yeah, you, there's also two other kinds of people in the world. There are people who really think far too much about whether they're being rude and rude people. So you are at least one of those other people. You're at least you're thinking way too much about how to be polite and you need to step back a little bit and take care of yourself. But that is such a good point, Hank. People who don't think too much about being polite are so impolite. So there's some value to being like a little too careful. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what you are doing in this case. Um, Do not just like if it's something that's going to bother you, alphabetize it. And then if if it ever comes back at you, which it will not. But in your in your like while you're laying awake at night, worrying about it coming back at you, you can be like, oh, I just did it alphabetically. And they'll be like, oh, okay, we accept. Yeah, no. But I I can't imagine that anyone else in the world ever has worried about this. It seems like such an edge case, Hank, that one of your advisors would email you back and be like, why did you put Professor Rosenstein before me? Like, what the actual heck? Do you not value poetry? I'm sorry. It's alphabetical. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it in go with the alphabet unless it's you're addressing brothers in which case oldest first, youngest last. <laughs> you should go by salary. You should go by how much they're being paid at their job. So you have to email them first and be like, "Look, I'm sending you both an email. First I need to know what your salary is." In that case, it definitely is, dear Hank and John. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, it is. I, oh, uh, my salary at Complexly is higher yeah. than yours because You're you don't the, work very much. I know. I report to you. <laughs> <laughs> Hank is my boss. It's so much better than when I didn't have a boss because now when I have a problem, I can just call Hank. <laughs> it's great. And then I call Julie. I cannot recommend having a boss enough. The years I didn't have a boss were just, it was full of tremendous mistakes. All right, John, this next question comes from Kizu, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my name is Kizu, and I used to work at a company that does over-the-phone surveys. I used to call over to Canada and the U.S. and think about what I'd say if I called one of my favorite YouTubers. My question is, would you have done the survey if I called you? Je voudrais te donner un buzo de Kizu, uh, which Catherine translated for me, and it means... Means I would like to give you a kiss, Kizu. 
uh, but it rhymes instead of that. Oh. Um, well, it didn't rhyme when you read it, but to be fair, <laughs> that did not sound like French. <laughs> John, I, yeah. uh, I would not have answered the question. And if I had answered the phone, I probably would not have done this. The last time I did a survey over the phone was like maybe 2001 when somebody called me and asked me a bunch of questions, and it went on for a really long time. Right. That's the problem with phone surveys, is that once you start, it's almost impossible to get out. The only I do, when people call me about political candidates, I do mm. answer, and I, I tell them who I'm mm. going to vote for. Although, I will say, one time I got a call, and it was from a pollster, but it was not—usually they're, like, automated— and I don't mind answering mm-hmm. those, but this was not an automated one. It was a person. And they asked me who I was going to vote for, for like Senate or something. And then their second question was, are you the author? And I was like, well, now you oh, now, you can't now you have a bunch that. of information about me. Like, you know who I'm voting for for senator. And so I was like, was there no training that went into probably this? Probably not a ton of it. So I was like, no, I'm not the author. But I get that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not the author. I do sound exactly like the YouTuber, but I he's know a the YouTuber. Guy. Yeah, he's my brother. He's my brother John. <laughs> I'm a different John. There's a few of us. It's like George uh, Foreman's kids. So, so you do answer those those. Uh, I don't even answer the phone if I don't recognize the phone number anymore. I answer the phone when I don't recognize the phone number, but only because I've only put about twelve people into my phone after having it for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> so your phone just doesn't know very many phone numbers? Yeah, if my 13th best friend calls, I I don't have them in my phone, so I've got to answer in case it's them. Boy, I tell you what, I got a lot of numbers in my phone, John. I've got like my 11 best friends in Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh did you text him when he was having his little, his little bit of trouble? I didn't text him. No, I figured uh I was thinking to myself, would I want some rando who had my phone number to text me? And the answer was no. Yeah, probably the right call. It reminds me of a great Kurt Vonnegut quote, Hank, from his novel Slapstick. <laughs> okay. If you can do no good, at least do no harm. Oh, that's good, John. All right, Hank, this next question comes from Thomas, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm an eighth grade boy, and I have a crush on another boy in my grade. Like, I have had the largest crush on him for almost a year now. I used to be able to talk to him, but this year I don't have any classes with him and my anxiety has risen. I have so much anxiety around him that when I have to go to my class, I'll go down a hallway that takes longer for me to get to my next class just to avoid making eye contact with him. I would really like to have a boyfriend. However, the thought of trying to talk to him gives me so much anxiety. When I talk to him, I get sweaty and I can't breathe and I can't formulate sentences. Do you guys have any advice for how I can talk to him without completely panicking? Thomas. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to handle that. I, I remember it, Thomas. I do, I, Thomas, I remember, I remember that, that those moments and that feeling, and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. It's so weird how you can talk to someone until you realize you mm-hmm. like them, and then mm-hmm. suddenly you can't talk to them. Yeah. Thomas, I think potentially this might be like making phone calls or getting shots that the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. Like... The first time you walk down the hallway past this person, 
is going to make you super nervous and you're definitely going to have the sweaty palms and you're just going to kind of smile and look at them and they're going to smile and look at you back hopefully and then you're going to be like okay i did it i injected myself with the nervousness of this crush and then maybe the second time you walk down that hallway it'll be a little bit easier and you can have a little bit less of an awkward conversation but i'm not going to pretend that this is going to be easy or straightforward because i just think it's just hard I think it's partially something that it gets easier as you get older and have more experience in situations where you're not 100% on the level as to like how everybody is perceiving everybody else. And it definitely is something that gets easier as you interface with it more. And so as is often the case, like the secret to doing hard things is doing them. I, I don't think it gets that much easier, to be no. fair. Yeah. Like I definitely experienced less anxiety when I had crushes after eighth grade than in eighth grade, for sure. Uh, but it was a relatively low bar to jump over. But even when Sarah and I first started dating, I remember like at first we were super awkward around each other, like, or mm-hmm. at least I was super awkward around her. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was made very nervous by every person I've ever had a crush on. Um, and, and like the, the times when I'm talking to them, it's just like such a heightened experience of trying to do everything perfectly and also to analyze everything that they're doing usually incorrectly. Um, whether I think that what they're signaling is that they are into me, I was always wrong about that. And when I thought that they weren't into me, I was also wrong about that. Just not, it's hard. It's hard to be a human. Thomas, would you like a quote from Kurt Vonnegut about his experience in middle school? (laughs) I was taught in sixth grade that we had a standing army of just over 100,000 men and that the generals had nothing to say about what was done in Washington. I was taught to be proud of that and to pity Europe for having more than a million men under arms and spending all their money on airplanes and tanks. I simply never unlearned junior civics. I still believe in it. I got a very good grade. I love the great the brilliance of Vonnegut is always in those last lines. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like a dad joke, except funny. (laughs) Well, that's what you get for Kurt Vonnegut. Was he a dad? He was a dad. Yeah. Uh, In fact, his uh, he adopted his uh, one of his siblings children after uh, after a really terrible tragedy. So he was dad to many. I don't know why I'm such an expert in Kurt Vonnegut all of a sudden. I really don't know much about him. I feel like you know tons about Kurt Vonnegut. You were always talking about Kurt Vonnegut when you were like in your 20s. I did really love Vonnegut novels. He was actually the first writer I ever like saw in person. I saw him speak in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And all I remember about it, Hank, is that there was probably like 900 people in the audience. And the authorities at the University of Alabama kept telling Kurt Vonnegut that he was not allowed to smoke in the auditorium. And he kept smoking anyway. And he would just say, (laughs) you've already paid me for this. Yeah, but we can fine you for a separate fine. No, no. At one point he was like, listen, I can smoke here or I can smoke outside, but I'm smoking. (laughs) It sounds like he's become less clumsy at being impolite, which reminds me, John, (laughs) that this podcast is brought to you by the following Kurt Vonnegut quote. The universe is a big place, perhaps the biggest. (laughs) Hank, today's podcast is additionally brought to you by the following Kurt Vonnegut quote, a great swindle of our time is the assumption that science has made religion obsolete. 
This podcast is additionally brought to you by this Kurt Vonnegut quote. To those who believe in telekinetics, I raise my hand. (laughs) And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by the following Kurt Vonnegut quote. History is merely a list of surprises. It can only prepare us to... This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Be surprised yet again. Oh, that's a good one. All right, John, this next question comes to you from Anna, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my boyfriend and I have been discussing this a little bit lately. We know that mountains are measured from sea level, but now climate change is causing sea levels to rise. Does this mean that the mountains will be shorter and we'll have to change the heights on Wikipedia pages? Listening in Denmark, Anna. Anna, I just feel like that's not on the top of the list of concerns. Anna, I'll say this. If the shrinking of Mount Everest can get you fired up about reducing carbon emissions by 70% over the next 30 years, then yes, yes, it's going to happen. Mount Everest is literally taller today than it will ever be for the rest of human history. (laughs) I mean, like people who climb Mount Everest in the future aren't really climbing the world's highest mountain. Because the only people who climbed the world's highest mountain were like Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay back in the oh, day. Oh man, that brings up a that brings up a fascinating question of like, is Mount Everest Earth's tallest mountain when there were previously taller mountains on Earth than we currently have? Right. Great point. People who climb Everest should clarify that, Hank. They should say, I climbed the mountain that was the tallest mountain in the world at the time that I was climbing it. <laughs> yeah, that's abs- that is accurate. They, we've gotten to accuracy uh, as long as it's just this planet, because there's definitely taller mountains elsewhere in the solar system and universe. The other... <laughs> the other thing that this question made me think of, John, is that like we are so used to thinking in human time scales and also thinking in a moment in time that is actually like stretched back has a great deal of consistency in terms of climate and in terms of a lot of right. things. And that has been really great for humanity. 
to rely on that consistency. And now we are headed into a world of less consistency. And hopefully we've built enough tools and communication strategies and, uh, and you know, technologies that will allow us to handle that shift. But it's going to be a shift because, like, the fact that we measure the height of mountains from sea level, like it does make it seem like sea level must then be some kind of like universal constant, but it is not. It has changed a lot over the years and it is set to change a lot pretty quickly in the next, uh, in the next hundred to 200 to 500 to a thousand years. Like, whew. Yeah, no, I was recently at the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah. I wrote about this uh, on the Anthropocene Reviewed, but when I was at the Bonneville Salt Flats, I kept thinking about the fact that not too long ago, the place where I was standing was two or three hundred feet underwater. It wasn't like it was underwater. It was mm-hmm. under a massive amount mm-hmm. of water. And we think that the beach is the beach and the coast is the coast and the interior is the interior. And none of that is really real except on these very small human timescales. Yeah. Reminds me of a Kurt Vonnegut quote. <laughs> is that one too many Kurt Vonnegut quotes, John? No, it's the right number. In fact, I think we might. I think we might have room for one more at the end. <laughs> okay. It reminded John of a Kurt Vonnegut quote, but he's not going to tell you what it was. No, it is. Hank, this is such a good Kurt Vonnegut. I know that I've. I, this is this this one is great. I, maybe you didn't like the previous ones, but this, it really is. Hank, it, it's perfect for the moment. Even if this weren't the bit of the show, it would still okay. be appropriate. All right. It's, it's from Hocus Pocus. Just because some of us can read and write and do a little math, that doesn't mean we deserve to conquer the universe. We, every, we, I got to read some of these books, John. They sound amazing. Yeah, you know, some, Slaughterhouse-Five is really, really good. I have read Slaughterhouse-Five, at least. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's definitely the best one. Anyway, I don't know that we need my, my, me taking digs at Kurt Vonnegut's lesser novels on the pod. <laughs> hey, hey, they're not all going to be perfect. That's, uh, that's fine. All right, Hank, this next question comes from Raquel, who asks, Dear John and Hank, have you ever swallowed a pill, and then even though you know it's in your stomach because you chugged a bunch of water afterwards, still felt the ghost of pills past lingering in your throat? <laughs> Why does that happen? Oh, Raquel, I think it's probably because the pill's still in your throat. No. No. No? No. I Is always it? thought it was just because the pill was still in my throat. Like it was no. stuck in a little fold or something. No, no, no. I, I, no, I know what Raquel is talking about. I feel this almost every time I swallow a pill. And it, it feels like a ghost. It feels like your throat is haunted by the memory of the pill. And that's always what I've just assumed it is. Well, I watched an episode of CSI one time in which during the autopsy, they found a pill stuck in the woman's throat significantly after she had tried to swallow it. And they were able to identify what it was and also uh, the, the brand of the uh, of the the uh, illicit drug that she was using. And it mm. led to the killer. Mm. So uh, b- by that, I assume that it is maybe more likely than we think for a pill because it's a pretty long tube um, to get all the way down. And, well, you don't uh, have to I, tell me. I've got eosinophilic esophagitis. I'm acutely yeah. aware of the length of the tube. It's a pretty long tube. Uh, John has a disease that sometimes makes swallowing uh, not work. It's terrible. Swallowing um, usually works. It's just that then there's, it just doesn't go all the way down. Yeah, no, that doesn't count as swallowing, John. Oh, you're not, it's not swallowed <laughs> until it's in your stomach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. 
I don't know. I don't know what swallowing is. I don't know what anything is. Raquel, uh, we are not a place to turn to for medical advice. We're uh, one guy who's seen an episode of CSI and yeah. one guy who's done a lot of Googling. <laughs> About esophaguses. Yeah. I am going to suggest to you to send this into the Sawbones podcast because I feel like Sidney McElroy knows the answer to this question. Yeah, Hank, I think that's great advice. Send people away from our beloved WNYC family. I think that you should listen to Radiolab and see if they have the answer. Just send it into Jad and Robert. I'm sure that they know what's up. I'm, I'm quite confident they do know the answer, actually. All right, John, we have one last question before we get to some notes and then some news. And it's from Asia, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm dog sitting for a couple while they're away in Iceland. That sounds nice. I've watched their dogs before, and this time they were kind enough to leave me a bottle of wine to enjoy. Everything was going fine until just now when I accidentally knocked over a side table, sending the lamp, my water glass, my tea mug, and my partially full glass of red wine flying onto the carpet. How much do you drink? Asia, you are into <laughs> hydration. Man, I deliberately tried to choose the least sentimental of their mugs just in case my cartoonish case of catastrophic clumsiness caused something like this. I managed to clean the wine with some miraculous concoction, and I cleared away the glass without spilling too much blood, but their lamp is broken. I tried to look up the serial number to no avail. I don't even know if it's like an expensive lamp. What do I do? Should I tell them immediately or let them enjoy their vacation in peace? Asia. Let them enjoy their vacation in peace. Uh, but yeah, you that, that's my experience. Yeah, this is not a big deal. Let them enjoy their vacation. But far more importantly, Asia, you do not need to accept responsibility here. There is an obvious alternate explanation for how this all went down. Mm-hmm. And the explanation is the dog. Yeah, your dog sitting. Your dog sitting. You just you just say like, oh, the craziest thing happened. You know your dog. It wagged its tail, knocked over a lamp. I cleaned everything up. Don't worry. Sorry about the lamp. Yeah. Or if it's like a little dog, it's like tail isn't high enough to hit a lamp. It like it got caught in the cord. It was running around. We were playing and I, I, you know, I was playing with it. I was doing the job you needed me to do. I was being a good doggy parent and the lamp is the casualty of that. Exactly. In the process of my extraordinarily conscientious dog sitting, mm-hmm. your lamp was damaged. And yeah. I apologize, but... Ultimately, this is on you for having a dog. And and additionally, you've hired me to watch your dog and live in your house while you go to Iceland, so I feel like you can absorb the cost. <laughs> I agree 100%. These people seem fine. <laughs> seem like they're doing okay. <laughs> all right, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I don't know how the Mars news is, but the AFC Wimbledon news is exceptionally sad. But first, we got to talk about Jess's email. Mm. She wrote in to say, Dear John and Hank, in response about what Abigail said about tell me a bit about yourself, I usually answer with something I collect. So when someone asks me to tell them a bit about myself, I say I have blank number of books or knives or stuffed animals oh. or tea sets. Oh. Whatever you collect, I always find that interesting. The seasons are going from pumpkins to penguins, Jess. That's a great sign-off. Oh, they are. It's happening right now. We're making the journey from pumpkin to penguin. That's hap- I mean, it's happened in Missoula. Everybody's pumpkins already are getting l- glumpy, and it's very. it was very cold. I was had to go ahead and call it cold, John. No, it's cold here, too. 
Jess, I, I like your answer, and I think this is a good strategy. I'm just going to throw this out there, though. Yeah. I'm not sure when somebody says, tell me a bit about yourself, the correct response is, I have 43 knives. <laughs> I agree. There are a number of things that you do not want to tell people that you collect. At least not off the top. Right. Tell me a bit about yourself. I'm a knife collector. Not, that doesn't work. Tell me a bit about yourself. I watch 85 hours of television a day. I mean, I'm I'm interested. Go on. (laughs) Yeah, I have six different TVs. What's the strategy? (laughs) All right, Hank, we got to get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I'll start. The news from AFC Wimbledon. Oh, it's been such a difficult week for Wimbledon. AFC Wimbledon, after six long years of Neil Ardley's leadership and Mm. management, uh, Wimbledon and Neil Ardley have parted ways. He is no longer the manager of the club. It's really painful. I I think it's painful for— I feel like that's—you think that's the right call, John? It's hard to know. Here's the thing, Hank. Nobody can question Neil Ardley's love of and commitment to Wimbledon. He's played for Wimbledon since he was eight years old. He loves the club so much. He saved Wimbledon from being relegated out of the football league. He led us from League Two to the playoffs up to League One. It's an amazing story. But the last few weeks, it's been clear even watching the games on my phone how sad he is how stressed he is how huge a toll this has taken on him Mm -hmm. uh, for Wimbledon to be in in such bad shape and I mean my hope is he's a great manager some other team is going to be very lucky I sound like somebody who's breaking up with someone but that's kind of how I feel Uh, and he's a great manager it's it's just that it, it wasn't working now at this club and I think all Wimbledon fans will look back on this time as really a golden age of, of our club and, you know, where we were led the right way by someone who had a deep appreciation uh, for the history of the club and the values of the club. And I'm very grateful to him for, you know, giving help, being a big part of giving me one of the best days of my life, you know, the day I spent with our dad and, and our friends at uh, at Wembley, you know, watching Wimbledon go up to the to league one so it's really sad uh there's no getting around it and i i'm really sad about it but i um i'm i'll tell you one thing i'm really happy about which is that the interim manager is simon bassey and you may not know simon bassey's name hank but simon bassey has been with afc wimbledon from the very beginning he was cut from the old Wimbledon when he was 16 years old for not being big enough not being fast enough he became a cab Mm. driver Mm-hmm. And when Wimbledon reformed and had tryouts in a public park, he was one of the people who tried out. He made it to the team. He made like 200 appearances in the ninth and eighth tier for Wimbledon, never scored a goal, had a penalty uh, in the la- in his last game as, as a player. And all the other players were like, oh, Simon, you should take it. And he missed the penalty. Um, but, uh, but he's an amazing, amazing person, a great leader, and he's been a coach for Wimbledon. He's still a cab driver. He's been a coach for Wimbledon for a long time, and he is really beloved. I, I, I have so much admiration for him. Every, time I, I, every minute I spend with him, I just he's one of those people who makes you feel like you're the only person in the world when he's talking to you. And uh, I really 
just think he's a wonderful guy. And so I'm excited for him to be the interim manager of Wimbledon. I think it's a great vote of confidence, and it also is a statement by the community of how they feel about about Simon. So, um, you know, it's a really difficult time. No getting around that. But Wimbledon are going to be appointing a new manager. If you happen to be a professional football team manager <laughs> looking for a job, you can go to AFC Wimbledon's website and apply. That is not a joke. Uh, applications are open. <laughs> How does it pay, John? I mean, it's a it, it's a good middle class, upper middle class job. All right, just like any other management position. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> slightly different. I thought about applying and leaving everything behind, uh, but then I, I guess there are two big things that, that, that discouraged me. One, my utter lack of qualification for the work, mm-hmm. and two, a fear that uh, I would be remembered as AFC Wimbledon's worst ever manager. Yeah, it seems not like a vanishingly small chance that that would happen, John. <laughs> Well, hey, because you know I'm great at managing people, and I know a lot about sports. <laughs> All right, John. The news from Mars. The InSight lander continues to rush, rush, rush toward the planet's surface. Um, it's going to be landing uh, on November 26th. So we have another episode before it will land, but then after that, it'll be on the surface of Mars one way or the other. Uh, unless it just misses. Unless it just completely misses the planet and just flies <laughs> off forever. Uh, but, like, I think they probably have gotten gotten all that straight. So hopefully that won't happen. Um, and, uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about one of its main instruments, which is its seismometer. So we know what that is. It's the thing that detects, like, the movement of, uh, of the of a planetary body, um, usually here on Earth, but there are some on other places. There's one on the moon. And there there actually has been a seismometer on Mars before. This one is much more sensitive than, than that one, which was back in the 70s. So you might think a seismometer, that's for detecting earthquakes. And yes, it does tell you when there is an earthquake or a Marsquake in this case, but it can also tell you things about the structure of the planet. So when there is a geologic event, whether that's a uh, so something that it can sense, whether that's a Marsquake or whether that's a meteorite hitting the surface of the planet, different waves travel differently through the planet. Some of them travel across the surface. Some of them go down into the middle of the planet and come come back. And so you can tell from that information where that Mars quake happened or where that meteorite hit. You can also tell things about the interior of the planet. So we know lots about Mars's atmosphere and about its surface and even its ionosphere. We know next to nothing about the interior of the planet. Like more than a mile down is a complete mystery. We don't know if it has a solid core. We don't know, like, we don't know how thick the crust is. So this is going to allow us to know way, way more about the the interior of Mars with an instrument that is so sensitive that when it arrives on Mars... It can't just like land. It has to be take like the lander lands and then the seismometer is taken off the lander and placed on the ground. So it's like very carefully mm. placed there by this like basically like you know, a little crane that's on the lander. And then in order to uh, remove the effects of wind and also of temperature change, because the seism- seismometer is so sensitive, um, it can't be like being blown around. It they remove this like little cute little dome shield thing that they then place on top of 
the seismometer so that it's shielded from temperature change and from the wind. And once it's in its little house, it can detect uh, uh, vibrations that are smaller than the width of a hydrogen atom. Wow. Which reminds me of a Kurt Vonnegut quote, John. (laughs) Science is magic that works. Is that really a Kurt Vonnegut? It, according to this page, it is. That was very elegantly done, Hank. I didn't. I didn't see it coming, which is really saying something because I've seen most of them coming. Yeah, they've been they've been fairly visible for a while now. <laughs> it's uh, one puppet where you can see the strings. Uh, all right. So that's great news. I'm very excited for Insight to Land, and I can't wait to tell you more next week about another of Insight's very good instruments that it's going to be using to understand the interior of Mars. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm reminded of another Kurt Vonnegut quote. This is the last one I'll say. (laughs) Really? Another flaw in the human character is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So true. It's true. I mean, Hank Green should have that tattooed on the inside (laughs) of his wrist. (laughs) Oh, my God. I have a I have a problem. Hank, thank you for potting with me and for coming up with this idea and all of the other weird ideas you've come up with over the years. Thanks to everybody for listening and a big thanks to our friends at WNYC for uh, welcoming us so generously into their podcast family. Dear Hank and John is a co-production of Complexly and WNYC Studios. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our editor is Nicholas Jenkins. Victoria Bongiorno is our head of community and communications. Our music is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be be awesome. awesome.